Let's pray together, shall we? Praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Father, we thank you for your wonderful ways. We thank you for your mysterious ways, that you have dealings even with us. We want to thank you that you are our God, and we can say that we are your people because you have called us even by your name. And we want to thank you because you've set your love upon us, that we are indeed the redeemed of the Lord, and we say so. We are the redeemed of the Lord. And we've been bought not with perishable things, things that will gradually decay and become worthless, and so we'll lose our salvation. But we've been bought with imperishable things that are always valuable, always precious, and are able to save to the uttermost, even the blood of the Lord Jesus himself. We thank you he was a lamb, we thank you that he came and was without sin, and he was tempted in every way like us, but he didn't give way. And when he died, he was sinless. But you took our sin and you laid it upon him, and you gave us his righteousness. Father, such love is so wonderful, we can hardly understand it. But we know because your Spirit has been given to us and has revealed these things to us. Father, tonight we come to talk about this most mysterious of things, the church. And Father, I'm asking in the name of Jesus, you will give us a spirit of enlightenment, a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of knowledge, that Father, these things indeed, Lord, should transform our lives. Father, we thank you that the Bible is not a closed book. Father, it's only closed to those who have their eyes shut or their minds shut. But it's an open book. And you say that the things which are revealed are for us and for our children. And that means that you have put them into our hands to understand. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit is here alongside to show us the things that we need to know. Father, tonight, may your Spirit speak. May he give the illumination. And Father, we just say to you, we're so hungry and we want it. We want to know the truth and we want more truth. Oh Lord, please liberate us even as we study these things together in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Praise you, Lord. We have spent uh, quite a number of weeks talking about Israel, talking about the Jews. That may have surprised some of you, but actually it's been quite right. Because as you probably know, the whole of world history can only be understood in terms of the Jewish nation. Sometimes I really wish that some Christian would write the history of medieval England or medieval Europe or perhaps the medieval periods of the world and modern history from the point of view of Israel, in other words, from God's point of view. I think it will give such a different slant on all of history that at last we'll be able to untangle the very complicated uh, ebbing and flowing of nations that has occurred. The majority of history, as it's taught today, of course, hardly touches on Israel, and they've missed the central purpose of creation. We know full well that God is interested in this nation, Israel, and we know as well that Satan has a macabre interest. His interest is uh, rather different from God's. Satan is interested in one thing, really. He's interested in breaking the word of God, proving God to be a liar, and proving that God does not keep his word. And the most obvious way he can attack is through the nation of Israel. For Satan knows that God has made promises to Israel which he must fulfill if he is a covenant-keeping God. And so Satan, who realizes that he's lost the battle on almost every other front, realizes this is the one area where his attack may still have some force. For he works it out like this. 
If he can destroy the whole Jewish nation, then God cannot fulfill his promises to a Jewish nation. And my beloved, I want you to know that when you look through history, every century there has been major anti-Semitism somewhere on the planet Earth. It's illogical, but it's vehement. And it can only be understood in these terms. Satan's attempt to utterly destroy the Jewish nation so that he can utterly destroy the credibility of God. Well, we can see it. But you know, as we look down and see all these pogroms and, and all the other uh, assaults that there have been upon the Jews, we also see something else. We see the tremendous faithfulness of God. For with the whole world at times against them, they've survived. For 4,000 years of one of the most stormy histories you could ever read, the Jewish nation has come down intact to us today. And the marvelous thing we know as Bible believers is this, that they will survive right through to the second coming of the Lord and right through into what God has planned for the future. Well, tonight I reluctantly drag myself away from the nation of Israel. I'm going to squawk just a little before we go, but uh, you'll see that in just a moment. And we're turning now to the next phase of God's plan, which is the church. And specifically tonight, I'm going to speak on the subject of the mystery of the church. Now, sometimes we, who are charismatic Christians, think that we've got the early church pretty summed up. We think we understand their thinking pretty well. But I've generally found, as I've talked to charismatic Christians, that actually they have very little understanding of the early church and the early believers in the church. You see, it's, it's hard for us because we've had 1,900 years of church history. In other words, we can look back over the years. The, the whole doctrine of the church has been expounded time and time again for 1,900 years, and the moment we became saved, we came into a revelation of what the, the church of Jesus Christ was all about. And so, when we look at the early church, we find it hard to see that actually they didn't have the same concept of the church that we had. In fact, most of them... In fact, all of them at first had no idea there was going to be such a thing as a church. They'd heard Jesus mention the word. They really didn't understand what it was all about. Let me just uh, show you, diagrammatically, the history of the early church. The book of Acts deals with the history of the early church, and a certain Bible teacher called Dr. Charles Clough has drawn a very simple little diagram which shows the history of the church as revealed in the book of Acts. I want to share it with you because it really is so beautiful. All he's done is this. He drew a rectangle. For those who are not mathematicians and don't know what a rectangle is, it's a slightly elongated square. He drew a rectangle, and on the top left-hand corner, he wrote A.D. 33. In other words, the day of Pentecost. And he drew an arrow parallel to the top of the rectangle, showing that this was time. This is the march of time, year by year by year, as you go from the left to the right. And then he said, now draw one line. Go from the top left-hand corner and draw a diagonal right the way down to the bottom right-hand corner. And he said, that's the history of the church, as revealed in the book of Acts. Well, need a bit more explanation. All of the area below the diagonal line ought to be labelled um, purely Jewish influence. Purely Jewish 
influence. And you see now what the diagram shows. In AD 33, the church was entirely Jewish in its thinking and it, in its makeup. But as time progressed, the Jewish uh, influence decreased and gradually the Gentile influence took over. Now, that's a nice diagram. The question is, really, is that what the history of the church really is as far as the book of Acts is concerned? The answer is definitely yes. Remember, these early Christians did not understand what the church was about. The early part of the history given in Acts actually occurred before Paul was saved and certainly before the New Testament was written. That's something Christians forget as well. They come along, they read the Gospels, then they start reading the book of Acts. They don't realize that the book of Acts took place before the Gospels were written. Very interestingly. Of course, the events in the Gospels had already occurred, but no one had penned them down. And certainly the books written by Paul hadn't come along, and the revelation of John, and the letters of John, and the letters of Peter, they weren't there. And when they began, they were entirely Jewish in their thinking. Now in the Old Testament, the Jews have viewed themselves as the top nation, and quite rightly so. Oh yes, the Gentiles were included uh, a little, if a Gentile actually um, decided to believe in the God of Israel, then they used to say, well, that's fine, you've now become a believer, um, you'll get some spiritual blessing, but you're not going to have any other sort of blessing, we're still top dog. They didn't understand what God was going to do. Let's uh, go to the book of Acts and begin with chapter 2, and I'm just going to read a few scriptures through to show how this diagram is absolutely accurate as far as the history of the early church is concerned. First of all, go to Acts chapter 2, and this occurs just after the day of Pentecost. I'll begin verse 44, this is right at the end of Acts 2. Acts 2, 44, And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple... Very interesting. And breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now isn't that staggering? The very early church had its main meeting still in the Jewish temple. And what is more, they preached almost entirely to Jewish people because they were the people they were interested in. And in fact, right up to Acts uh, chapter 8, you've hardly got a Gentile uh, talked about. It's all what the Jewish church was doing. It's all what uh, this band of apostles were busy doing. It's only in Acts 8 that Philip miraculously is taken by the hand of God, taken out into a desert where he meets an Ethiopian. And the Ethiopian's reading Isaiah 50, 53 and says, what on earth is all this about? And Philip opens it up uh, to him and that Ethiopian comes to the Lord. In Acts chapter 9, Paul saved. That's a crucial event. Acts chapter 10 then, at last the Gentiles come in in a big way. Here is Peter. Um, the Jews didn't like uh, other Jewish folk mixing too much with Gentiles, and so he's safe at Joppa, staying with one Simon who was a tanner, and uh, a good Jewish gentleman. So uh, Peter is absolutely fine. All of a sudden he receives a vision from God which says, Oh Peter, don't call what I've created unclean. Some Gentiles are going to come. They're going to pick you up at the door. You're to go with them and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter scratched his head and said, Lord, I've never touched anything that's unclean. I'm a Jew. I'm a good Jew too. He said, you will do as I say. 
And he showed him the vision three times, till finally Peter was convinced. And you know what happened? Off Peter went into the house of Cornelius, and uh, he went in very reluctantly in case the church back at home would hear what he was doing. And he started preaching to these Gentiles. And what happened? Something that he never expected to happen. They received the same blessing that he had received. Now that was not Old Testament theology. They might receive a little bit of blessing, but certainly not the, bl the blessing, the fullness of blessing that the Jews had come into. Turn to Acts 10 and let's see it. Acts 10, and beginning verse 44. Here it is, the shock of Peter's life. While Peter, Acts 10, 44, yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, and they of the circumcision, they're the Jews, which believed, were astonished. They couldn't believe what it was going on. Gentiles, the dogs, coming into blessing. Impossible. Here it is. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water? that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. They prayed, uh, then prayed they him to tarry certain days. And now read on, chapter 11. And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him. Now can you see, that is when the diagonal is right at the top. They're so Jewish in their thinking, they object to what Peter has done, and they contend with Peter. What do you think you're doing, Peter? You've been mixing with those Gentiles, haven't you? And this is what happens. They that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest in to men uncircumcised, and didst eat with them. But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning, and expounded it by order unto them. And so he goes through and tells them exactly what had happened. And this was revelationary truth, and can you see, it caused a revolution in the thinking of the early church. And God used this filling of the Holy Spirit to confirm that he was establishing a brand new thing which was entirely different from the thing that they had known before. If you go on to uh, verse 15 of Acts 11, And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God did give them the like gift as he did give us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? I know it's against my theology. I know it's not found in the Bible, but what could I do? It happened, he says. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, then God also has granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. And they came into it. But notice it wasn't co-equal. Oh, so the Gentiles have come into life. Ha ha, oh, pretty good. Then you get, of course, this stunning man, Paul, with his partner Barnabas, and they start preaching, and the missionary journeys start going out. But do you know, when they went out, it was only to Jews, first of all. They were so Jewish in their thinking, off they went to Jews. But God had the way of handling that too. For the Jews didn't like what was said. And soon Paul found that more Gentiles were responding than Jews were responding. And so gradually the Jewish influence declined. 
uh, to see that. Acts 13. These are just a few verses to demonstrate this truth. Acts 13, beginning verse 14. Here they are. Paul and Barnabas. And when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Sidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Do you see that? Into the synagogue immediately, and they sat down there. And, of course, there was readings from the law and the prophets, and uh, they're asked to speak. Verse 16, Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, in other words, I'm talking to you Jews, and ye that fear God, give audience, the God of this people of Israel, and so he starts preaching. The end of it, well, uh, go over to verse 44. Verse 44. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. And when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And there it is. So the Gentile uh, influence starts creeping in, and soon it will completely dominate the church. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, and here's a quotation from Isaiah, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for should this be for salvation unto the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. Praise the Lord. Corrected translation in that verse. Praise God. Marvelous stuff. And here they are. Now the Gentiles are getting thrilled. One-upmanship as far as they're concerned. Paul had a lot to learn and he was coming into a dynamic revelation which we will see. I'm not going to read any more. Continue it through for yourselves. It's a lovely study. Just turn to Acts 28, right at the end, and see how Acts 28 ends the book of Acts. It's surprising how many Christians have never read this chapter, chapter 27 and chapter 28. He's talking to the Jews. He says, I have a hope for Israel. And they say to him, okay, speak to us. Verse 23. And when they had appointed him a day... Acts 28, verse 23. There came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets, from morning till evening. Praise the Lord. We have some way to go. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that, Paul had spoken one word, and he quotes, well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people, and say, Hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For the heart of this people is wax gross, their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and should be converted, and I should heal them. And verse 28, Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. And so we find that we have progressed along the time scale, so that the Jewish influence is coming right down, and the Gentile influence is increasing. Now, this was stuff that the early church had to learn. This is second nature to us, but they didn't know it. They had to step out, step by step by step. 
And it was Paul who actually became the main exponent of the church. Do you know all of his letters are concerned with the church in some way or other? Even when he mentions prophecy, he's interested in the prophecy concerned with the church more than any other form of prophecy. He is indeed a Jewish man going to the Gentiles with a revelation of the church. It's in Ephesians that he talks about his revelation of the church and he couches it in very interesting language, language which gives us the key to prophecy in the Old Testament. And praise God that the Holy Spirit led him to speak in this way. Turn to Ephesians and chapter 3. Ephesians was not written until 30 years or thereabouts after the day of Pentecost. 30 years of church history had gone past before Paul wrote these revelations. Now in Ephesians 3, and we'll begin verse 3, and he's talking about what God revealed to him and what his ministry is. Alright, Ephesians 3 and verse 3, where we meet a word which is very important. How that, he says, by revelation, God, that's he, God made known unto me the mystery. And it is this word mystery that we concentrate on tonight because it's important. Now to us, a mystery is something that's puzzling, something we scratch our heads about and say, well, that's a real mystery to me. I've read his book from beginning to end and I still don't understand a word. That's the type of thing. In other words, something that we just cannot fathom, we have no idea about once we've looked into it. Beloved, I've said this so many times, I have to say it again, that's not the meaning of the word mystery to the Greeks. The word mystery was entirely different to the Greeks. By a mystery, this is what they meant. They meant something that you didn't know yesterday, but which has been revealed to you clearly today. And you think to yourself, wow! Fancy my being blind, I didn't see that yesterday. And all of a sudden I understand it, that's a mystery. Something which you didn't understand, which has now been made clear. The word mystery comes from a Greek word, all right, muiu, as it's uh, pronounced, muiu, M-U-E, and a long O there, muiu. And it means to initiate someone into secrets. And the people who used to use this word, mystery, more than any other, people were the people who ran religious cults in the Greek world. There were loads of religious cults. Whatever you wanted to believe, you could find a group that believed it, you know. They worshipped every animal, your favourite animal, from the cat right through to the goldfish. You could find anything, you know. And they all had their secret ways and no one knew about them. But all you did, you know, you showed you were an absolute cat lover, you know, and suddenly someone would knock at the door and say, excuse me, um, we worship cats at the church I go to. Would you like to join? And so they would say, yeah, I think that's pretty good, you know, and so, uh, so along you went. And it was when you went along to them and they closed the doors that they would let you into the secrets of their cult, you see. That's what it was about. No one knew what went on, only the people who were initiated into the religion. That's it. And that's what the word meant, a mystery. In Pompeii, there is a certain ruin which is called the Villa of Mysteries. And some English people go along and say, oh, secret trap doors and things. <laughs> Nothing to do with it. What actually it was, it was the centre of a particular type of worship. And they, they worshipped in a very secret way. And only the people in the know knew what, what went on in that villa. And the walls have paintings depicting the type of religion that they practice. It's beautiful red 
colouring on the walls. Now, that's what the word mystery means. The nearest we get to it today is the Freemasons. The majority of people have heard of Freemasons. They don't know anything about them, but the Freemasons know everything. And they go through a special initiation ceremony, and you have a sign that you can recognise another Freemason. You see? Now, that's a mystery. That's to initiate you into that particular religion. By the way, could I just say here, if you know any Christians who are Freemasons, they need a great deal of help spiritually. You are not free to be a Freemason as a Christian. However, that's another subject. All right? But nevertheless, mystery means to initiate someone into something. We have a word from it that some English people know, and that's the word musty. Have you heard of a musty? A musty is someone who's in the know. You know, ah, I understand. Not everyone understands, but I understand. Now, that's where, where we get the word from. The Bible, therefore, when it talks of a mystery, talks about truth which God kept secret, but which he then decided to reveal. And when Paul here talks about a, having a revelation of a mystery, he's saying, beloved, no one else knows about this, but I'm giving you the information because I found the key. Yeah? Oh, there is one lovely verse. Keep your finger in the place here and turn on to the next book, Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. And we see the word mystery used, but it's not translated as mystery. Philippians 4, verse 12. Paul says here, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Now, the word know there, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound, is the word from which we get the word mystery. And it should really be translated, I have learned the secret of how to be abased and how to abound. I've learned the secret. I didn't know it, but now I'm in the know. That's what he's saying. You'll notice, by the way, many Christians haven't learned that secret. Many Christians know how to abound and they're praising the Lord. Wonderful. But the moment tough times come, they haven't learned the secret. They don't know what it is to be abased. There are others, you know, who uh, are legalists who think that unless they're poor and living in poverty, then they're not spiritual. Unless they're sort of uh, really blaming themselves for everything, then God can't be pleased. Now, they know how to be abased. The trouble is, the moment you give them a pound, they feel unclean, you know? And they don't know how to abound. Now, Paul was a perfectly balanced Christian. It didn't matter whether he had a million pounds or nothing at all. He knew the secret of how to abound. Praise the Lord, you see? And how to be abased. That's the, that's the thing. Now, there's the use of the word. Back to Ephesians 3, and notice what he says. All right? How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Now, he's talking about one mystery. In the New Testament, there are nine mysteries that are given. Nine of them. I'm not going to ask you to name them. That is a very difficult question for most Bible scholars. There are nine mysteries mentioned. Jesus revealed four of them. Paul revealed three of them, and John revealed two of them. Now, we talked about one in the first Bible study of this series, the Mystery Babylon. Now, that was one. We're coming back to her a little later on in the course. But this is one in Ephesians 3 that Paul had knowledge of. And why does he say by revelation? He had to get it by revelation because no one else knew it. God had to talk to him directly. You see? And that's why God separated him for a time. All right, now, the end of verse 3 and verse 4 are in brackets. Leave them for the moment. We'll be back to them. 
Uh, so we go from verse 3 down to verse 5. Known unto me the mystery which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. All right, now this mystery was not made known in other ages. That's the point. Which other ages is he talking about here? He's talking about the whole history of the earth right back to the six days of creation. They didn't know anything about it, not at all. They had not the foggiest idea. The people living between Genesis 1 and 11 knew nothing about it. The Jews knew nothing about it. It came as a mind-blowing revelation as far as they were concerned. And notice, it is now revealed, who to? To the members of the early church. The apostles and to the prophets. Moses didn't know about it. John the Baptist didn't know about it. But Paul does know about it. It's an absolute secret. That the, here it is. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. This is not saying that the Jews will be blessed, the, sorry, that the Gentiles will be blessed. The Jews knew that. The Old Testament makes that clear. Oh no, this is even more dynamic. They will be fellow heirs, and that means equal heirs with the Jews. No wonder God didn't reveal it at first. The Jews really couldn't have taken this. You mean he's equal? You know, he's British and he's equal to me? Poof. You know, you're really joking there. And they couldn't understand. Fellow heirs. Fantastic stuff. And then, of the same body, oh no, surely there are going to be two bodies. There'll be the Jewish body and the Gentile body. Not at all, you're going to be one body. Well, well. And partakers of his promise. Now the Jews, remember, had all the promises of God made to them. The Gentiles didn't have any. Oh dear, oh dear. And now they say, what? And now the Gentiles have as many promises as we have? Oh, that really is incredible. This was a tremendous secret. God was going to bless the Gentiles equally to the Jews and bring them not into a Jewish body or into a Gentile body, into the very body of Jesus Christ who just happened to be a Jew. One body and they are going to be co-equal within that body. All right? And then verse 7 he says, and that's my ministry, right? Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. Been hidden from the very beginning and suddenly this mystery is revealed. And what is the mystery? He names it in the next verse. It's the church of Jesus Christ. A total mystery which was revealed to Paul. Verse 10, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. And do you know when the church came into existence on this, this earth, the elect angels all caught their breath and started cheering. They thought it was the most brilliant thing they'd ever seen in their lives. It was stunning and wonderful to see the devil completely defeated in one fell swoop. Not only defeated by Jesus, but defeated by all believers because of what he'd done by establishing the church. And the, the fallen angels, they sneered. They trembled in fear because of the thing that God had created, which now includes us, the church of Jesus Christ. Bringing together the Jews and the Gentiles into one body so that they might be co-equal. 
Now, the little bit in brackets, the end of verse 3 and 4, is simply saying, and listen, I've already written to you about this. There we are. As I wrote afore in few words. And if you read Ephesians 2, that's exactly what he's referring to. The mystery of the church. He talks about the Gentiles. Verse 12 of Ephesians 2, we'll just read a few verses. That at that time, ye Gentiles, he said, were without Christ. You were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the uh, covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But look at this. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off, that's you Gentiles, you are made nigh by the blood of Jesus. For he is our peace, who has made both, that's the Jews and the Gentiles, one and broken down the middle wall of partition between us. One new man is what he talks about. And that was the revelation and the startling revelation that Paul came into. This is why it's called the mystery. Nowhere in the Old Testament is the church ever revealed. Now remember this. Those Old Testament people were great Bible scholars. And they searched the Old Testament from beginning to end and they didn't find one reference to the church. Absolutely not one. They didn't have a clue. It came as an utter astonishment to them when it was revealed. That's the wonder and the glory of our God. He conceals things because it's his glory to do so. And it was his little secret. And when all these Jews were busy talking about what they knew, God was chuckling because he knew something that they didn't know. Praise the Lord. And we can have a chuckle about it as well. I'll tell you, I sometimes get, gain the impression that God sometimes chuckles at us because there may still be yet more mysteries to come. We don't know. And all of a sudden you say, look at him talking down there. He doesn't know. Not yet. Praise God. Well, they studied and studied. Nowhere in the Old Testament is the church mentioned. Now, what does this mean? It means that if any man stands up and turns to an Old Testament passage and says, this relates only to the church, he is way off base. It's impossible. If a man stands up and says um, that the Lord shall reign in Jerusalem, and he says, now, of course, the Lord's never reigned in literal Jerusalem, but this refers only to the church, he's dead wrong. No, no. It means that Jesus one day will reign literally in Jerusalem. Because there is no mention of the church specifically in the Old Testament. This does not mean to say that the Old Testament doesn't apply to Christians. There are principles that we find in the Old Testament that can be applied to Christians. Yes, that's true. There are certainly marvellous pictures to help us understand our faith given in the Old Testament. Without a knowledge of the Old Testament, you don't really understand the New Testament. All we are saying is that there is no specific reference to the church in the Old Testament. This is absolutely crucial. Derek Prince uses the Old Testament correctly. What he says, for example, he takes a, a particular passage. Let's take the one that at the second coming of Jesus Christ, the Jews, the watchmen of the Jews shall see eye to eye. Now what he says is not what some other Christians say. They say, oh, well, this is the church. He doesn't. He says, no, that's for Israel. And he says, but I believe it's a principle which we can apply to the church. Now that's correct use, praise the Lord, because he's not saying that's a reference directly to the church. Now there's a world of difference between that. But can you see, this helps us understand these difficulties we've had in the Old Testament. Suddenly we've been reading along and we think, oh, I know exactly where this is going. And all of a sudden it starts off about something else. And you think, what on earth is this? Follows straight on, and it seems to have jumped. You're absolutely right. It has jumped. 
It's missed the whole of the church period. And the, when the Bible speaks, it talks about this bit and about this bit as if they happen next door to one another, leaving out the church bit in the middle. Let me give you two quick examples. We've seen some of these when we talked about Jesus, of course, as the Messiah. Uh, go to the last book of the Old Testament. That's the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 3, he's both concerned John the Baptist, we have a gap. Beginning verse 1, this is God talking. Malachi, last book, go to Matthew and it's the book before. Ever so easy. Right? Malachi. Malachi and chapter 3 and beginning verse 1. God says, Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And we all nod and we say, great, that's John the Baptist. We know that. He prepared the way before Jesus. Super. And then we read on, and, and we're expecting to see something about Jesus. And sure enough, we do, but not what we expect. For then he goes on and says, And the Lord whom ye seek will suddenly come to his temple. And that suggests violently as well. He rushes into his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, you Jews, Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, and who may abide the day of his coming? Who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fine, like full of soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi, and so on. Now we know that that refers to the purification of the Jews at the second advent. Now what's happened? He's jumped from John the Baptist right the way over to the second advent. How? Well, you see, he didn't mention the church to anyone. And uh, just after the uh, colon there of verse 1 is the church. Except God wasn't telling anyone. You see? It's a little secret. There are hundreds and hundreds of passages, um, hundreds, tens of passages, that, uh, that actually show this same principle. Uh, go to another one. That's uh, Isaiah and chapter 40. Let's see another John the Baptist one. Isaiah 40. And we'll begin verse 3, and it's exactly the same principle. All right? Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now that's John the Baptist. How do we know? Because in John, the Gospel of John 1, 23, and Matthew 3, 3, that is referred to John the Baptist. So there's John the Baptist. And then what you read. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall be made straight. The rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. What's that? Second advent. And you look at verse 4 and you say, what does that mean? Does it mean everyone's going to be equal? Okay, that's a nice spiritual picture from that. But do you know what it actually means? It's talking about mountains getting lower and valleys being built up. Uh-huh. And you say, oh, surely that's not literal. Do you know it is literal? Because when Jesus returns, he is going to establish his temple in Israel, and he wants everyone in Israel to be able to see it. And there are some valleys and mountains in the way. So he takes hold of the top of the mountains, and he puts them into the valleys. And the whole of Israel is turned into a plain, except for Mount Zion, where the, uh, the temple is built. And everyone in Israel should look up and they shall see the temple. Absolutely literal. You can make all sorts of spiritual pictures. I don't object to those at all. As long as you see, it will also happen. And that is referred to in other places, praise God. And we'll come on to that when we deal 
with the establishment of the temple later on. Now then, where's the church? Ah, shh. It's in there, but no one's telling it. You see? Where does it come? It's in the space after verse 3. It's the church. You can see passages like this in Hosea, in Psalms, and in Daniel. We're going to deal, uh, either next time or the time after, with one in Daniel. The main one I want to give you tonight, because this is such a crucial little point, uh, you know, it, it, it's a simple point that uh, people can sometimes overlook, but it really is important. The main example I want to give is a very interesting one, and one that you should find easy if you've heard the rest of the series that I've given. It's found in Daniel and chapter 2, and we'll be in Daniel now for the rest of our time. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, and in this fascinating chapter we have God's view, God's Old Testament view of world history. And he gives it in the form of a nightmare to a very illustrious king called Nebuchadnezzar, an old friend of ours. I don't have to say too much about his background, I hope. All right, Daniel and chapter 2. And Nebuchadnezzar gets really mean in this chapter. Let's read from verse 1 and see how mean he gets. And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, about 604 BC, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Now that's a nightmare. That's a nice biblical way of, of uh, saying I've had a nightmare, you know. So if you go down in the morning and say, I've had dreamed, I've dreamed dreams and my spirit was troubled and sleep break from me, it means that you've had a nightmare, okay? My wife would say, never mind dear, sit down, have your Weezer Vicks. Verse 2, the most frustrating thing about this, he knows he's scared out of his wits, but he can't remember the dream. You see? So what does he do? Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. Now they were used to this. The king had a dream, and he'd get on the phone or whatever they had, the bugle horn or whatever, and he'd summon all the wise men, and then he'd say, look, I've had this dream. And he'd tell them the dream, and they'd stand up and say, well, sire, this is terribly easy. You see, what it means is this. And they were particularly good in imagination, and so they could paint all sorts of things, and Nebuchadnezzar was well pleased. This time he couldn't remember the dream, so he says, well, I'm still disturbed, so I'm going to call them anyway. And so he comes along and says, welcome. They thought, well, this is lovely, another hundred pounds, easy, you know, nice morning. And so the king says, verse 3, the king said unto them, I've dreamed a dream. And my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. That's what they said, you know. By the way, when we say God bless you, that's what we're saying. Eternal life, live forever. Praise the Lord. However, let's just throw that in, no extra charge for that. O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. <laughs> well... <laughs> I'm glad you asked me that, says the king. Um, the king answered and said to the children, Oh, well, that's it. The thing is gone from me. I've forgotten it. Well, I'll pay you a little extra, you know, today. So what I want you to do is tell me the dream I've had and the interpretation. Okay? <laughs> and they look absolutely aghast. Then he says, Oh, by the way, I forgot to add this. It's in the extra clause in your contract. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, you should be cut in pieces and your houses should be made a dunghill. <laughs> That's it. 
Now, this is a nice, friendly chap. But if you show me the dream, he says, then I'll give you marvelous gifts and wonderful blessings. Now, of course, they all start shaking their books, saying, oh, come on, sir, be, be fair. You know, and he says, look, if you can interpret the dream, you must be able to tell me the dream. It's quite easy. And so, uh, slaughter begins. And Daniel, who by this time has gained quite a lot of uh, success in the Babylonian court, he hears of this, and he says, well, that's nothing, he says. Oh, absolutely nothing. My God can reveal that. And uh, so he goes along and he prays and God shows him what the dream is. He's lovely. It's lovely, by the way, the, the way that he talks about God. If you go to verse 20, just the end of verse 9, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And look at this. And he changeth the times and seasons. It's a marvelous phrase, that. What it means is that in the history of the earth, God moves it on to the next phase. So we don't have to worry. You know, And when something disastrous happens, don't worry, God has moved it on. And then he says, he removeth kings and setteth up kings. So it's all what our God does. Of course, God is smiling at this point because there's a little season and a time that he hasn't told Daniel about, and that's the church period. Okay, and here it is, verse 31, I've drawn it on the board. Thou, O king, you'd have a nightmare if you saw that, wouldn't you? <laughs> Thou... Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, this great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was awesome, he says. This image's head was of fine gold, and notice he splits it up into four regions, across like this, all right? This image's head was of fine gold, there. His breast, that's his chest, and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, there it is. His legs, his feet, uh, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay, but they're both included together, the legs and the feet, both included together. That's what you saw. And then you saw something else. Thou sawest till that the, a stone was cut out without hands. That means nothing to do with man in this stone which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. And this stone comes down and falls on the feet of the image and the image topples over. And look what else. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold, broken to pieces together, became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. In other words, this image is totally smashed up and the wind comes and blows it right away till it doesn't exist anymore. But the stone is left. And look what happens. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then he gives the interpretation. We can go through this quite quickly because most of you know the history that it relates to. Verse 36. This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory... And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And so Nebuchadnezzar and specifically Babylon are represented by the head of gold. Then he says, After thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee. Now we know from history which uh, kingdom came next. It was Medo-Persia. Now, the tapes in the last series fill in the detail 
of all of this. Another kingdom will come, and then another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And who replaced Medo-Persia? It was Greece. And then we come to the last. And the fourth kingdom. And in this heading of the fourth kingdom is included the feet as well as the legs. We're going to deal with the feet next time in detail. All right? So come back for future attractions if you're interested in feet. This one is Rome. Rome. And look what it says. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these things, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of, of potter's clay, part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in, uh, be in it of the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. In other words, when Rome first comes, it's strong and it has power within it. And the Romans beat down all their enemies forcibly. But it changes. They've still got immense power, but there's weakness now in the iron. If this referred to today, but it doesn't, this would be a perfect picture of the West. America, the strongest nation, but what's it got? It's got a human heart beating within it. In other words, we've got to make sure we're fair to everyone. We've got to make sure that there's freedom of pre the press. We've got to make sure we don't offend world opinion. And there's Russia, they don't care what they do. There's America... And they're absolutely bound, you know? Even their, their main uh, secret weapons, they have to reveal to the whole world, oh, we've got a secret weapon, they say, and it's going to do this. Russia says not a, not a thing, you see? Now, that is a picture of what's going to happen. Rome ruled ruthlessly with a rod of iron. Something is going to come in which will actually weaken the power that is in Rome. I'm not going to say anything about that beyond this point, but do you see the type of uh, thing that it's talking about? Then it says, verse 44, And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. And this stone represents the kingdom of God. And look what happens. Which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all those kingdoms, and it shall come, uh, it shall stand forever. So we see, according to this passage in the Old Testament, world history is this. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the kingdom of God. Amazing. Well, well, well. Now some people say, oh yes, you see, uh, the church is this stone. Oh no, there is no reference to the church in the Old Testament. And of course, the church didn't cause Rome to collapse. In fact, the opposite is true. Rome has almost caused the church to collapse. The influence that Rome has had, we've never been able to get rid of. I'm not talking about Roman Catholics. I'm talking about the effect of the Roman state upon the church. It produced tremendous worldliness and wrong thinking in the church. Oh dear, oh dear. And so we see, from Rome, we go straight to the kingdom of God. And you'll notice this. The kingdom of God comes in by something that God does. Nothing to do with man at all. 
It's not established by do-gooders or by socialists or communists or the World Council of Churches or guerrilla movements financed by the World Council of Churches or by charismatic Christians. Nothing at all. What is it? God sovereignly moves and wham! Violently the kingdom comes in and the whole image topples, falls onto its face. Well, well, well. And we look at Rome and we say, but that hasn't happened. What's missing? 1900 years of history is missing. Between, well, I'm not going to say exactly where it comes in, but basically between Rome and this kingdom. You imagine, since Rome fell in 476 AD, there'd be marvellous empires. You see? Tremendous empires. The greatest empire the world's ever seen was the British Empire, greatest in extent. There was a saying that the sun never set on the British Empire. You see? Staggering. No mention of it at all. In fact, the only mention made of these 2,000 years are events which relate to Israel's fall or Israel's rising again. Can you see? There's a gap here, which is the mystery of the church. Now, next time, we're going to see exactly where it comes in, as far as this passage is concerned. But there it is. The church is a mystery. With that information, we are now, now able to go on. This is simply a workshop. We have actually created a tool today, which next time we're going to use. And next time, we're not only going to understand about these feet and the toes, we're going to answer a question which a lot of Christians have asked, and that is this. Will the church go through the tribulation or not? You have everything now within your grasp to answer that question once and for all without there being a shadow of doubt left in your mind again. The two tools are, one, take all prophetic passages literally. We've dealt with that last course. Secondly, the church is a mystery. In other words, no passage in the Old Testament directly relates to the church. I'm going to leave you suspended at that point, And next time, we'll come and answer these important questions. God bless you all. Amen.